times that never were Lost ideas and tech we'll never know A strange familiar place Far in our space Takes you back to where you long to go from wbus interplanetary radio this is planet tomorrow where the future that never was is alive and well i'm your cybernetic chef rye dorsey my name is zachary goldberg and i know you want me to comment on your wacky crazy name you got this time but i was i was fixated on i couldn't remember i was like what how do we start this and then you were like from wbus and i was like oh yeah i was like trying to look for did we write this down somewhere so thanks for the reminder this bit is just so memorable that you forget how everything's structured well now that we're three episodes in i'm comfortable officially calling it a running gag you yeah. have these titles for yourself. What did, what would what'd you say? A, a Cuisinart chef? What'd you say? Cybernetic chef. I yeah. started the sentence without knowing what I was going to say. And I just... Wow. <laughs> Improv. Yes, and. <laughs> well, I thought this one was good. I, I, I liked it. And it's kind of related to what we're talking about today. Oh my God, it is. Okay, I don't know what I've been like smoking, but I, I have no idea what's going on right You're now. on a podcast. It's called Planet Tomorrow. <laughs> right. You make it with your best friend, Rye. Who is a cybernetic chef, which is relevant because we're talking about novelty restaurants. There we go. We got there. Yeah. This feels so natural to me because... I feel like growing up, we were just in the era of novelty restaurants. Wherever you went, there was a novelty restaurant. We were novelty restaurant crazy. Yeah. And I feel like it's one of those things that's also just like inexplicably and inextricably linked to outer space and the future. And like, because at least it's got to be like 50, 60 percent of them were themed to aliens or something. I don't know. Have you ever been to a space-themed novelty restaurant in your lifetime? Yeah, um, I only went once, but I very strongly remember Mars 2112. Yes, the New York space restaurant. Yeah, just around Times Square. You showed up and you had to go on this little ride. These novelty restaurants love their little rides, you know? And you had to, <laughs> it was like a simulator, but like barely. And they were like, we're going to Mars. And, and you're in like folding chairs or whatever. It was probably a little nicer than that. I'm not being generous. And then the other door would open and you would be at the restaurant, which was on Mars. And they had these like creepy walk around alien characters, these like gleep glops, most disgusting pizza. I remember my mom being very like <laughs> rubbing in the idea that like, I'm taking you here because I love you. But like, <laughs> this is not, <laughs> this is disgusting. I don't think I even well, like it either. That's the thing with novelty restaurants. It's never, the food is never good. No. Like, yeah. At most you'll have like a passable meal, but you'll pay too much and it'll just not be that good for what you're yeah. paying for. And, and we're not talking about like a restaurant in a theme park, like, cause there are plenty of themed restaurants that are good. I'm talking about like the random, like for some reason in Iowa, you know, 
like there'll be a random restaurant themed you know to mars for no reason like that kind of place and the food's never good going back to mars 2112 i have this article here where Shaquille O'Neal got kicked out of the <gasps> restaurant for not having the proper attire, which I didn't know that there was a proper attire. What for was this. the proper attire? Uh, this article says that he rolled up wearing jeans, a sweatshirt, tennis shoes, and a beanie, which what was simply else would not you do. wear to Mars? <laughs> I, I have many questions. I don't know, but apparently he got kicked out, and uh, he asked, "Are you serious?" And then promptly left the scene. <laughs> what? So maybe this is why the restaurant is now closed because they turned around uh, Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> that's that's that. I don't like the way that smells. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, I'm glad I never returned then. Yeah, I don't even think I thought the food was that good then. I only went because my friend Jared in like elementary school, I remember, was raving about it when he went to New York. And I was like, I got to do that. <laughs> I remember being disappointed because then on the way back, I think there was supposed to be like a, a space elevator or something to get out of the restaurant. And it was either broken or they just didn't bother. And you just kind of walk through. <laughs> oh, but the the epilogue to my story was that my old office building was in Midtown. And I realized like somewhat recently that the subway station I used to take to get to that office building, you enter through this big sunken plaza. And that sunken plaza, I'm like 90% sure I found out used to be the entrance to Mars 2112, <laughs> where I would take the subway every day to leave work. That's so funny. I wonder if there's like some like remnants of it still. There was also, like, lore with it, I've learned. I feel like a lot of these restaurants, at least if they knew what was good for them, had lore. It's kind of like a necessity to have, like, an overly complicated lore. Even the diner near where we went to college together, Soupenburger, Cozy Soupenburger, <laughs> they used to have them on their menu, it was like... In ancient Greece, Zeus once, you know, uh, threw his lightning down onto the great hamburger patty of, of Athens and crafted this burger from. Here we go. I got I got the character page up. We got Empress Gloriana. Life forms of all shapes and sizes regard her royal highness, Empress Gloriana, ruler of Mars, as the queen of their hearts. The kind, gracious, and beautifully blue-skinned empress embraces her role as supreme host to all interplanetary travelers. She hopes you feel as happy and at home at Mars 2112 as you do wherever in the universe you may live. Her eyes are royal blue, her age is forever young, and her favorite designer is Oscar de la Rocket. <laughs> uh, we got Captain Orion. Having proved his skill and bravery as Imperial Guard on Mars, Captain Orion has been named the mighty protector of all Martians and visitors to our planet. His loyalty and dedication to Empress Gloriana inspire respect and discipline in his legion of Imperial Guards. Captain Orion's goal of universal peace includes not only Mars, but extends to your home planet as well. That's kind of threatening that's a threat yeah <laughs> so i was gonna say these are these are martians right these aren't humans 
right this guy he's, he's got like green skin and very scary eyes and he's wearing a battle suit you don't want to mess with this guy but his favorite flavor of ice cream is rocky road <laughs> that's it oh there's this amazing picture of captain orion with uh bill clinton <laughs> <laughs> oh he was plotting something that's right <laughs> i like that it was like it felt like you were in a cave you know it was in like a martian cave like red rocks all around um actually it was called crystal crater which boasts a three-story crystal tree covered by a glass canopy that affords an amazing view of the martian heavens and the earth beyond well okay (laughs) but thank you for that because now i'm gonna make a soundbite of you saying um actually to play on this show for the rest of eternity (laughs) and i'm gonna drop it anytime i have to correct you about something (laughs) um actually did you have any themed restaurants futuristic or otherwise growing up in your town we had a medieval times which that's still around that's a that's a holdout yeah, they, they're still kicking somehow i i, w- I would have assumed the pandemic would have ended them but they're still going i think they just moved to unionize did they well that's good for them good for them even though i uh i don't like sword and sandal movies i certainly do not like sword and sandal restaurants D- don't worry don't worry this is not you supporting the union is not <laughs> an endorsement of uh king arthur themed <laughs> media i understand does does the hard rock cafe count as a novelty restaurant yeah it uh, absolutely hard rock cafe planet hollywood if you want to go back to the space theme which can we just appreciate for a second that's a like their food always sucked i mean they you know like any of them and like i I didn't like to go there that much especially because as a kid i didn't really understand what i was looking at but that's a brilliant theme they're like look like it's you know planet hollywood see the stars and then you go in and it's like stars (laughs) like celebrities have you heard of the dive restaurant that was in la oh yeah yeah that was a, a joint venture between uh Jeffrey Katzenberg and like yeah, Spielberg, Spielberg was involved. Right? Yeah, I never went there, but I think I saw some like Travel Channel yeah, or like there. Food Channel like segment on it, and I was like fascinated because one of the one of the bits was was probably so annoying for all the uh, employees is that like every thirty minutes they would have like a, a submerge uh like sequence where like things would like shake and like the lights would go off and then like things would go like the submarine going underwater oh that's awesome it was the era of big and tacky you know i feel like this was an era in like theme design where things weren't made of real materials like if if there was supposed to be metal you wouldn't see metal you would see plastic made to look like metal you know and so you'd have like these big like you know plastic looking (laughs) like submarine sticking out and like really bright garish colors that we didn't know what we had you know back then i i i think like it came across as cheesy and i'm like this rocks like i wish i could go because now everything just looks like a starbucks you know (laughs) yeah and the awesome thing about it is they're always just like surrounded by just like normal buildings and you just see this one submarine building there i think that just like really adds to like the majesty yeah yeah the kind of like craftiness but also kind of charm of them absolutely I don't think we had any, like, futuristic 
novelty restaurants in my hometown. But I would be foolish not to mention the two novelty restaurants owned by different athletes with questionable reputations in my hometown (laughs) growing up. We had, this one was okay. It was Pete Rose's, (laughs) named after the baseball player, Pete Rose. And I don't know, I just, there's something so funny to me about like Pete Rose, who like his whole thing was that like, he was caught for gambling. <laughs> like Pete Rose's child casino is like a Simpsons joke, you know, like where the kids can like go and like gamble on the, with their tokens on the things. <laughs> um, that one was okay. But then the, the real star of dining in Boca Raton, Florida for any child was Wilt Chamberlain's. <laughs> This was not a franchise. It's not like Wilt Chamberlain owned like a chain of novelty restaurants. It was like Wilt Chamberlain said, I can get a spot here in Boca Raton, Florida, and I'm going to theme this restaurant to me. And (laughs) it was, you know, all the usual stuff like ski ball and whatever, but they were everything was basketball themed. So like the ski balls were little basketballs (laughs) and like... (laughs) The tokens had little basketballs on them and there was a small basketball court where you could play. So like it was a sports bar, but then like, you know, while mom and dad like had their grown up conversations, you know, yeah, I'd go and like, you know, shoot some hoops or like <laughs> try and win a scooter. <laughs> it was so weird. And I thought nothing of it. This was so normal to me because like... <laughs> First of all, because novelty restaurants were so ubiquitous at the time. Right. And just by virtue of it being there and that being the one that we went to, like to me, Wilt Chamberlain is the most important basketball player who ever <laughs> lived. Like when I was 10, I could have told you everything about Wilt Chamberlain. And I, I got, I won like the, the card of him and like a little bobblehead and something. Like I got, I got all that stuff. I, he must be important. He has a whole <laughs> restaurant here in Boca. <laughs> that rules i just i love that that like i think the sports like former like sports star like theme restaurant is like a whole category because i remember um i had a childhood friend he told me legends of going to the mall of america and going to hulk hogan's pasta mania and he had a pasta mania (laughs) shirt that i was so jealous of and like (laughs) later i learned like it was this whole it was a it was just a pasta themed restaurant. It lasted like three months in the Mall of America. <laughs> <laughs> the only remnant is the Pasta Mania shirt that I have thought about buying on eBay because it looks so ridiculous. Pasta Mania. I mean, such good names. Did it have an exclamation point? Of course it did. Of course it did. Like they all like. <laughs> how could you not want to go to a place so enthusiastic that it has an exclamation point? They must really want me to eat there. Wait, I'm looking at this picture you sent me. <laughs> okay. the The thing that I'm obsessed with. I mean, maybe this is Hulk Hogan's thing. But I love that he's wearing, he's got his crazy pasta mania shirt. It's got the exclamation mark. I, for real, did not know that. I just guessed. So that's really (laughs) funny. Um, His hair looks like spaghetti and he's holding the spaghetti. (laughs) But in this whole zany setting, I just love that, like, he's also wearing this big ass cross (laughs) (laughs) necklace. Like, pasta mania with Hulk Hogan. But we got to give it up 
We gotta give it up for the big guy. <laughs> At the end of the day, none of this would have been possible without Jesus Hulk Hogan Christ. sitting on a backwards chair being like... <laughs> it is truly the distillation of the American dream. Okay, okay. We're in a board meeting with, uh, you know, the, the masters of the restaurant business. What is the Planet Tomorrow gimmick? the restaurant what are we serving okay okay so maybe in my head canon the planet tomorrow restaurant which has to be called like planet tomorrow's pasta mania or just planet tomorrow <laughs> exclamation mark pasta tomorrow <laughs> pasta tomorrow pasta tomorrow a planet tomorrow restaurant <laughs> <laughs> okay well there's a little there's like a little clip art cut out of you on the menu wearing a, a chef hat and you've got like um like a cybernetic arm you know and and yeah. it's like you know cyber chef what, what are you what'd you call yourself Cy- cybernetic chef yeah right, cybernetic right. chef rye says try the the, the lasagna <laughs> <laughs> like it's like you know <laughs> And the the whole thing is uh, the entire time you're eating, it is just playing on repeat every episode of Planet Tomorrow at way too loud of a uncomfortable volume, let's say. And we were really bold and we opened this when we only had, you know, our current run of <laughs> yeah, it's, two and a half episodes, two episodes. <laughs> three episodes. <laughs> Why don't you get on down to Pasta Tomorrow and tell them Cyber Chef Rye sent you. Okay, so what's on the menu? Oh, we got Galactic... Nachi? Nochi? Yoki? Is that what you're trying to <laughs> You know, there's some words you never have said out yeah, loud. Yeah, yeah, that's fair, that's fair. And Milky Way shakes. Yeah. All right, folks, welcome back. Please welcome our next guest on the show, Evan Collins. Evan, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Carrie, please? So I'm Evan. I'm an architectural designer and the co-founder of Kari, or Kari, we say it both ways, but uh, it's the Consumer Aesthetics Research Institute. We basically looking holistically at the design culture and landscape from the 1970s to the present, basically just investigating overlooked consumer design in various fields, architecture, interiors, products, graphic design, fashion, any anything kind of that can be a sort of commercialized product. We try to dive down and sort of pull things back up that may have been forgotten and work to kind of categorize and give names to various kind of styles that maybe just have sort of fallen through the cracks over the past couple of decades or so. And yeah, that's basically what we do with this this project that we've been working on for the past eight years or so. Can you give us an example? Like, do you have a favorite aesthetic? Uh, Favorite favorite one is tough. I mean, uh, we have so many at this point, but uh, there's one that I do- Sorry, we're starting with the hard-hitting question. I do really love this weird one. I, this one is not well, particularly like well known, um, but it's called Contempo Eclectic, which is a, it's like a 1980s style, it'd be like a Midwestern contemporary luxury home in like 1992 or something. You get a lot of like lucite, acrylic, like swirly rugs and all these like pastel colors. There's like a, a famous house. It was like the 90s house or something that that was viral like a couple of years ago. And it kind of like embodied that style just really well. A lot of 
almost like folk artists from like small time artists and like craftspeople in like the 80s and 90s and stuff that created this, this really just playful Memphis inspired sort of furniture and, and objects and interiors and stuff. And it's just a, extremely fun. If I had my dream home, it would be 100% in that, <laughs> in that style. Someday I could afford that. But yeah, it's kind of my favorite at the moment. When you were a kid, what did you think the future would look like? If you can put yourself back in the shoes of five-year-old Evan, what did you think the future would look like? Well, it's definitely probably one of the reasons why I got so interested in Y2K aesthetic in the first place was that's pretty much how I imagined the future would be. I thought it'd be like flying cars and silver metallic skyscrapers and like holograms all over the place. And I guess the future would look like a late 90s music video or something like that. Um, Just a lot of metallic, but also like very colorful and blobby spaces and architecture and design. And there were a lot of those predicting the future type kids books and things like that that were out around there and just constantly show all these like really sort of fantastical the house of 2020 and in some ways they weren't totally wrong and you know there'd be like there was a little robot butler that didn't really happen but you know they had like remote work and virtual reality and stuff and so some of things sort of came true but um i imagined the future back then to be a lot more like exuberant and kind of crazy and colorful and sort of wildly futuristic in comparison to the more regular and the thing that it turned into. You know, they're really reasonable. I mean, like, boring. Yeah, you can say boring. boring. <laughs> it's okay. It is, unfortunately, quite a bit more boring than I expected. So a big thing from this era of big colors and fun and wackiness is themed restaurants. Something that, while there are still a few, I do miss the ubiquity. You picked out for us five of your favorite futuristic or future-adjacent themed restaurants. So it's, it's it's a loose loose guideline. So <laughs> let's go in ascending order. We're building our way up to the very best futuristic or future adjacent themed restaurant. What is your number five pick? My number five pick is a strange one. Uh, it is futuristic adjacent or maybe even retro futuristic. <laughs> it is the HR Giger Bar in Tokyo. I don't know that one. Yeah, it's a very strange one. So H.R. Giger is like the well-known illustrator, designer, mainly worked on like films and, and things like that. And he does these like really sort of intense, they're called biomechanical, they're like alien looking. They're really sort of scary looking, but um, it's kind of, they're kind of fascinating. We have it under a style called industrial gothic, which is just sort of like pipes and human merging with biomechanical sort of stuff that was pretty popular in the industrial rock music and stuff from the 80s and 90s. And H.R. Giger was like a huge influence on that style. And it is futuristic and kind of the dark, kind of the dark side of the sort of an idea of the future, um, like cyberpunk sort of related. And so when he was like kind of at the height of his popularity in the 1980s, I believe the story is just really interesting. So he was giving a talk about his work and like someone asked him to make a wish and his wish was like, well, wonder if my work could be like, if we could have a bar, like we could open a bar around the thing. And he just (laughs) thought it was like, kind of like a one-off joke, weird thing. And then someone who was present there, they were from Japan and they went back and they're like, okay, well, I'm going to make one. Like, we're going to do it. And he was like, no, 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 no. Like this, I don't want this. I don't want to be involved. (laughs) Or he, He has no idea like this was happening. He tried to get a little involved and he was just like very wary about it. And for some more context, like this is the late 1980s and Japan is having like a huge 
economic boom, like just one of the most intense like the world has ever seen. And they're going just absolutely wild with like incredible architectural creations. I have a little channel for it on on the arena where I, I try to collect these examples just because of how all over the place you have some really intense sort of creations and designs. And this was kind of part of it. So much money was kind of flowing around that you had the ability to create this, an actual bar space that is themed around this person's work, which is just really intensive. I can't imagine how much it costs, but it's sort of wild. I'm looking at pictures of this thing. This thing looks amazing and also very disconcerting to <laughs> enjoy a drink in. Yeah, it is really interesting because like the design of it, HR Giger was consulting on it or something, and he wanted to have this really like wacky system where if you see in the photos, there's like these three layers of like these weird looking tongue thing, seat skulls or something. It's right. <laughs> really crazy. <laughs> and he wanted to have them actually be elevators so that the tables would go like up and down on the three <laughs> levels and stuff. And oh they constantly like shifting and rot- like going up and down. And of course, like once he actually came up against like fire codes and fire um, safety <laughs> and stuff like that, it was, it was like totally nixed out of the design. And he had had it and he disowned the bar and he never went there and he just didn't want to hear about it ever again. And the weird thing, like five years later, or at least, you know, this is sort of allegedly or something. Five years later, one of his friends told him that the bar had gone out of business and it had fallen into the hands of the Yakuza, <laughs> which is <laughs> just kind of crazy too. And like he installed a roulette table and it's like the rear CD characters hanging out, which fits, you know, pretty fitting with the design of it actually. Oh my God. That's but it's so crazy. Cool. I, I don't know with a lot of these things, like after that, I have no clue what happened to it. Like it could be wow. still there as something else. It could be d- demolished like decades ago, but it's just sort of those weird sort of kind of creepy sort of looking spaces but it's also just really kind of incredible like the craft that went into it even if it's kind of disturbing looking is pretty incredible also i don't think we said but hr giger worked on movies like alien like that kind of yeah. like design yeah and he did one for um the initial attempt at dune hodorowsky's dune uh, in the 70s or something it was some really really crazy concept art for that one too but um that didn't happen this is the kind of place that i really admire from a distance but would have scared the living shit out of me as a kid (laughs) and is definitely this is more of a rye restaurant than a (laughs) this is like i wouldn't have been able to look at it it would have scared me so much (laughs) even if i was a newborn child i would want to be in this place Okay, so what's the next one? Number four is kind of one from around the turn of the millennium. And this one's in Sydney. It's the uh, Zertz restaurant. So X-E-R-T-S. It's kind of another sort of space themed. This one's alien themed, but it is much more of a lighthearted one than the previous example. This one was built for like the 2000 Summer Olympics around that time. And it was a $35 million restaurant, kind of like a children's sort of focused one. I'm looking at pictures and th- this is more my speed. This is <laughs> this is what I would have <laughs> liked to go to. Again, they spent like an unbelievable amount of money on this, but it's really cool. And I think it's actually, you know, in comparison maybe to um, some of the other ones, it's a bit more futuristically tasteful sort of design. It's very sleek, um, but it's got these... Tasteful is not a word I would use to ah. describe any of these restaurants, <laughs> but go on. It's more, t- slightly more toned down uh, than maybe some of the other ones. Palatable, but, uh, palatable. Yeah. I would say this is classy. This is like kind of classy. It's, yeah, I sure, mean, sure. As, as these as 90s theme restaurants go. But um, yeah, so this one had kind of like this really fun sort of experience where um, you kind of board a spaceship and you get a nice virtual reality ride. 
And then you you kind of land into the restaurant and you've got, especially at the time, which is really cool, you've got these interactive kiosks at each table, which would have like blown my mind as a kid. You can order food off of them. You can play like interactive oh. games and stuff like that. And if you see some of the pictures, it's got, I'd love to like, I wish someone would upload like the interface because it looks so crazy. It's got like a 3D rotating disc or something with, you know, little characters doing stuff. And it's just one of those like really fun, very 90s interfaces i'm looking at this rotating disc the little aliens look to me like the aliens in space jam almost like a similar aesthetic yeah no it totally reminded me of that that, the whole website for some reason now it has this weird urban legend associated with that there's a ghost of a child that haunts it which i don't even know what that is exactly Uh, about (laughs) yeah at least I don't know. There was an article, a couple articles that mentioned this and some of the people that worked there back then had mentioned that, um, unfortunately, like there was a kid who had a birthday party there. And then a couple of days later, he passed away. And then they have now like a ghost of a child that wanders the restaurant or something like that. And it was one of the reasons why it didn't make it past like 2003 when it closed. But this is sort of an odd little point about this otherwise just very sort of like mainstream fun restaurant. <laughs> To cap off this discussion about this beautiful little piece of history, I can't like confirm this, but it's true in my mind. This YouTube comment says that it's been turned into a Hooters. Oh, I saw that. Too. <laughs> I did see that. I was. I didn't even know they had Hooters in Australia, but I guess they do. I hope they kept the theming. <laughs> <laughs> the best Hooters in the world, right? <laughs> So my number three is probably one of my favorite designed examples here. It is the Encounter Restaurant at the LAX theme building in Los Angeles from 1997. And so this one is just like really fascinating history. It's a building that a lot of people know. Theme building outside of LAX, the kind of spaceship looking with the got the arches. It looks very, it's very of the 1950s, 60s boogie style, which was the space age kind of futuristic, optimistic style of a lot of roadside establishments. And then it kind of made its way into larger examples of architecture like this at the time. So it had an original history as a restaurant all the way from its original construction in 1961. And it basically had a sort of relatively normal sort of existence for about 30 years or so, and eventually went out of business. And that's when it was reimagined fully by the Disney Imagineering team, which I thought was just really sort of a cool sort of side project that they were working on that I just would not have expected from Disney around that time. And so while they were doing the remodel of Tomorrowland in 1996, 1997 um, at Disneyland, I believe, they wanted to incorporate some of that original futurism of that time into this restaurant. And so it's basically, I think it was described as a restaurant where George Jetson Barbarella and James Bond could all have like a drink at the same space. It's got like that sort of googie 60s lounge, just kind of mixing a lot of aesthetics from that time period and and reviving them into this kind of like hyper exaggerated 1990s playful form. And so you have these really crazy looking alien lava lamps that are placed on top of just various parts in the restaurant, lots of curves. And there's a part of it that actually has like a wall that looks like a planetary surface just wild, exuberant, sort of colorful spaces and and lots of lighting with kind of blobby shapes and everything's curvilinear in the entire restaurant. How would you categorize this aesthetic? Because like you said, it has influences from earlier eras, but is is sort of put on steroids for the 90s and whatever. Like, what what name would you give this? Yeah, I mean, it's very heavily influenced, again, by the Googie-style space age and kind of that general sort of 50s, 60s kitsch that's been revived in the 1990s. 
especially we even have a channel for it specifically for Googie Kitsch Revival, just because it was so prevalent at the time. You had even like some of these other restaurants, there was like one called Pluto's in California. And it's got this logo that's of course, like all blobby and like lots of, you know, colorful shapes kind of on the ceiling and stuff like that. So they have kind of similar examples from the time that are also reviving the style. But then again, this one is taking it to such a higher sort of degree and incorporating sculptural forms that weren't exactly possible or, or really feasible in the 1960s. So in a way, it, it does fit as a really great example of kind of the Y2K aesthetic, because it is kind of creating something almost wholly new out of original inspiration from like the space age, but it's so much further beyond those original eras examples. I was a big Disney dork as a kid, so I knew about this as a kid. I was very excited and never, never got to go to it. Yeah, and it's unfortunate, again, this is one where I believe it closed in 2013. So I never got a chance to, to visit this one. But I think they, actually the interior is still intact in there. So it's like hopefully some, someday really? someone could come back. I wow. believe no one occupies it. And it's never been changed to anything else. So that one hopefully one day will come back. What? One <laughs> interesting thing, though, and I did not even know this until I just looked into it for this research. It kind of goes back. This is one of the more odd or unsavory aspects of the 90s. Uh, it's kind of, I don't even know if you call it voyeuristic, but apparently the designer said that in the design process, and he's one of like the main Imagineers, had proposed that they would install rubber gloves, like the ones that are used for isolation boxes, in the wall between the men's room and the women's room in the restrooms. What? And nope. nope. Yeah. And I what? was I was just like blown away. What the like what the <laughs> hell is this? What are they talking about? But it's seriously like on the designer's website. And I was just like, why would you put that on there? <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where the 90s is fun, but sometimes when you look back, you're like, oh, boy, a lot of these things just don't age well and should never be brought back. It's right. <laughs> very questionable sort of... Wasn't even okay back then. I don't think, I don't I don't know I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what's the next one? This next one is the Remote Lounge New York City from the year 2001, designed by Leo Fernakes. I hope I said that right. So this one, I did a Twitter thread on it because I was just so fascinated with the concept of this. And it has a lot of interesting implications for like current social media era and the ideas of uh, voyeurism and being watched or viewed or having an online personality. So this one was created in New York. And basically, it was kind of a almost 70s retro sort of space filled with these little rows of TV monitors. You'd basically come in and sit down with like, you know, yourself or a couple of people and each monitor on the TV had also had a camera and a joystick and a couple of controls. And you could go into anyone else's feed that was sitting in the restaurant. It was like channels. You could basically do channel surfing to see other people throughout the restaurant and they could see you too. And also like move your camera around. So Basically, it was like a whole weird sort of voyeuristic early 2000s kind of vibe going on in this place where people would, I think you could chat with other people too. You could like send them messages, be like flirting with them. And it was just very interesting, especially for that time. It was very popular for its first kind of couple of years. Quite a cool space, uh, even just architecturally. The designer described it as it was a 70s kind of vibe, 70s retro futuristic, but designed to be entirely hosable down for to be drunken idiot proof. So that was kind of like something you could like basically just 
Yeah, not my words, <laughs> but they did like you could hose down the entire restaurant or something. Um, kind of like I was gonna say, like a '90s New York bar, like with all that technology <laughs> around. Yeah. That's dangerous. <laughs> One of those concepts that's very much a product of its time. It, it was started by this person, yeah, again named Leo Fernikis, who was a part of. Josh Harris, if you, um, Josh Harris was kind of like an internet celebrity at the time. And he did this really interesting social experiment called We Live in Public. There's a movie about it from, I think about a decade ago. It just, it was from just that really dot com hype, like techno hype era where everyone is just like super excited about these new emerging technologies and they're coming up with these kind of really wild ideas. And so that one was like, you had a bunch of people staying in these little pods in like, this reality show kind of vibe thing going on. I would recommend checking out the movie or documentary on it. It's absolutely, it's a really fascinating look into late nineties internet culture and these like dot-com celebrities that have totally vanished and are completely forgotten. There's a whole like interesting range of like first wave internet celebrities that no one remembers them. Not even like the Gen X people that were there at the time seem to (laughs) want to talk about them or remember them. And I just think it's kind of fascinating to see that initial wave of of kind of people and, and, and the, like the spaces like this that it, that it produced. I love this one because it's just such a specific, like it only be made when it was made. Like it yeah. would not make sense in any other. <laughs> yeah. And it's fascinating because it only, it's like, it, it just went through that exact time. And then right in 2007, which is like what we kind of consider like the start of like smartphones and social media, it like right. died right then. Like, of course it's just, it vanishes wow. right when everything, right when like the stuff that it, in some sense, it kind of, pioneered a, a lot of that in kind of a physical space and of course then like the actual like digital technology takes off and it's like now this obsolete thing although this reminds me i saw recently that there's an there are like apps where you can play claw machines like there's a physical location where there's claw machines oh, but you can play yeah, with them see, on yeah, your phone and there's like there's like weird like mini golf places where you can like play mini golf on your phone in a real place and there's like a person sitting there and you can try to hit them and it's just So like that kind of spirit, I think maybe is living on. All right. And let's finish it off with number one. What is the number one best futuristic or future adjacent theme restaurant? So for my number one pick, it is the best and like most, I think, well-known one. It is Mars 2112. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That one is like the prototype for the most yeah, like space-themed, uh, weirdly Martian sort of obsessed themes of the late 1990s. It's the one that opened in Times Square in 1998. It really just embodies the entire sort of whole 90s theme experience because you've got, you know, you enter through there, it's like a giant gift shop, of course, and you get your tickets to go on a little Voyager spacecraft and, you know, you've got your ticket to go into space and you board onto, you know, your spacecraft and you of course get a, like a virtual reality, a four minute virtual reality ride up into space. And then you enter into the Martian crater, which is like, they call it, they've hollowed out a Martian crater and they've inhabited it or something. And you get enter into this just totally wild space of glittering fiber optic lights. And you've got glowing bars of like rock and stuff like that. And all this like metallic chairs and People in alien costumes, like serving you pretty mediocre food, <laughs> just always another kind of nineties theme experience. Is the food is eh, not so great usually. It's but, not why um, you're going there. Yeah, exactly. No. Not the reason for <laughs> all I got here is enjoy homebrewed Mars beer. Yeah, sure. Okay, <laughs> the very like lazy theme ones. It's, it's I Mars love that. beer. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. You're drinking beer. This, yeah. this is Mars beer. <laughs> That'll be forty dollars. Yes, right. exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure one of them got to have like, I'm sure there should have been like a crystal gym 
jug that had like a glowing it, it could probably dry ice you gotta have i'm sure there was a dry ice drink there <laughs> oh, absolutely. somewhere you have to have dry ice thing at every possible theme restaurant maybe with like a glowing right. ice cube in it or something but martians love dry ice true. <laughs> <laughs> and so mars 2112 it's just pretty perfect, like just kind of embodies everything. You get the full experience. And even on the way back, like after you're leaving the crater and the lava pools, you get teleported back down through, you know, some sort of special elevator or something like that, back down to the gift shop where you can, of course, buy more stuff. But uh, yeah, (laughs) that's kind of my number one just for that reason. And also because in like another 90s reason, they opened another one in Chicago, which like failed within less than a year, which is a big theme of Y2K is failing instantly. Wait, really? Yeah, they... I didn't know that. I know, it wow. barely... these All these things that like barely registered or sort of disappeared so quickly that they were like a blip. It opened in Woodfield Mall in Schaumburg, Illinois, only 2000 to 2001. That's interesting. Is it like a exact replica or is it was it different in some way? I can only find... it's You try it like searching for these things and it's always just so difficult to figure out what the images are exactly like that people label them weirdly or they're just sort of right. blurry but i did see it looks basically the, it's like a smaller scale uh mm-hmm. less intensive less expensive version of that most of these things didn't last particularly long there's a whole long list of ones that just failed within like a couple of years but the one in new york lasted surprisingly long all the way to 2013 why do you think they all failed so quickly were they all like money laundering schemes or like <laughs> I've, I've looked into like a lot of the ones like um, especially Dive. That was another one that was a Steven Spielberg one. It was like oh, a yeah. submarine adventure. Yeah, that one has a little bit more like media coverage on like what exactly happened. And a lot of the cases, it's like, you know, they're super excited about it, like way too optimistic about what's going to happen. And they expand super quickly. The service kind of goes down the toilet and everything is just they've spent they put way too much money into these spaces and they can never like recoup it. A lot of the times they, they think that I think for the case of Dive, they wanted to make the money back through uh, gift shops sales. And they really overestimated how much people wanted merchandise of a thing that is just a restaurant. <laughs> I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's it's a restaurant. It's not like a movie or anything that people are particularly attached to. And so a lot of 90s exuberance about retail stuff is why a lot of these failed. They're way too overly optimistic about their chances. <laughs> did you ever get to go? Oh, yeah. So we did go. It was really strange. We were visiting New York in 2005, I believe, for like Christmas or for Thanksgiving. And we decided to have Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> at Mars 2112, wow. which was... <laughs> you have a cool family. That, that's <laughs> rad. <laughs> I, uh, I was really surprised that my mom was up for that. She's usually pretty traditional about Thanksgiving. Like, pretty intense on it so glad i got to go before closed down i think that wraps it up so thank you so much for preparing these five restaurants and for sharing them with us this was awesome really appreciate it and so where where can if you want to be found where can people find you and carrie and y2k institute and anything else they should know about so our main platforms are um, kari.institute, it's our main core website. I'm very active on my Arena platform, which is are.na, kind of a platform similar to Pinterest, but like usually a little bit more academically rigorous, or we try. And we're also on Twitter at the Y2K Aesthetic Institute and my personal account, just under Evan Collins. And um, yeah, those are basically our main uh, platforms at the moment. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Hi, how are Would you? Would you like to try our Mama Mia minestrone flavored Milky Way shakes today? Uh, no, no thank you. Uh, can I please get... What did you want again? 
the Galactic Nyachi. Can I get the Galactic Gnocchi? You mean the Galactic Nyachi? Uh, yeah. Is that all? Uh, no. Can I also get the Lightspeed Lasagna, please? And, uh, <laughs> Rye sent me. <laughs> what? Oh, uh, Rye sent me? What? Uh, Rye sent me. I'm sorry, sir. Can you speak up a bit? Rye, R-Y-E. Rye sent us. Like, Cyber Chef Rye, you know? We heard it on the podcast that if you say Cyber Chef Rye sent us, that they'll give you a discount on the lasagna. The, yeah, yeah, the podcast. The podcast. I don't know what that is. Is that all? Yeah, uh, that's all. Thank you. That'll be 2349. Please fly away to the next window. Sorry, Rye. On March 26, 1990, in Cambridgeshire, England, local police received multiple sightings of a mysterious spaceship that had reportedly landed on the side of the road. Reports described a giant flying saucer shooting lights into the night sky. Police rushed down to the reported landing site, and to their surprise, there was a UFO parked on the A604 in Alconbury that night. Thankfully, this ship did not bring death and destruction to the human race, and instead brought out-of-this-world delicacies like star fries, space shakes, and Jupiter juice. The Megatron had landed. We talked to Tony Khan, who runs a project called Megatron Memories that's been archiving information about this mysterious spaceship-shaped restaurant. So the Megatron was on top of a hill. So you'd see it as you were driving towards it. It would sort of emerge on the top of this hill. And as you drive in, there's a a robot sculpture at the entrance greeting you. And there's a a tunnel leading into it that looks like it's going underground, but it's just slightly curved. You go down this tunnel with all of these flashing lights guiding you inside. And then once you get inside, it's much larger than it, it appears. It's kind of like the TARDIS in that way. It's this big circular building with a, a huge column going up the center. And around that column are a load of computer consoles with touchscreen computers where you would order your meals. It wasn't quite so advanced because you would input your order and then you would have to go and physically pay for it. It must have been the first time I'd ever seen one. and I remember being amazed by it. And as part of my research, I found an article from 2008 saying, are touchscreens the future for for restaurants when, you know, the the Megatron already had them 18 years earlier. So it it was extremely innovative. One thing that people remember is that it had star-shaped fries. Maybe a little gimmicky, but uh, I think for the age group we're looking at, it's pretty special. But it's um, most of it is just the usual kind of thing that you would expect from, from a diner or from a burger restaurant. It's one of those details that really sticks in people's heads. It's, it's the, the star-shaped fries, it's the touch screens, and it's the fact that when the place opened, the police got calls reporting UFOs. Early on, when I first started looking into it, I happened upon a man called Rob Clapperton. And Rob Clapperton has been performing as a robot since the 1980s. He started out with body popping in the 1980s. Started working at the Megatron in 1990 on weekends, working as a robot performer. And I realized that he's still doing it to this day. And he's played a whole range of robot characters. 
and I've got to know him a bit and he's just a really nice guy. He's played a range of characters, he makes all of his own costumes. So in the early 90s when he was working at the Megatron, he was usually called Robin the Robot, but I think his his real name was Cybertech Unit R0661E, so it looks like Robbie. <laughs> He was modelled on a, a Cyberman from Doctor Who, so it's just kind of a uh, bodysuit with all sorts of things stuck to it, and he used to make noises and had flashing lights. He was a kind of Terminator character at one point, so he was covered in like, fake blood. So it's, it's, it's a range of things, really. They didn't advertise for a robot. I gather that he just turned up one day and volunteered, because when the place first opened, a man called Roger Bunnage was there, and Roger Bunnage played a character called Arby the Robot, and he used to be on kids' TV and Top of the Pops, and he'd be recognisable to all children of that sort of age. And he was there on the opening day, and I think Rob saw that and thought, oh, here's, here's an opportunity for me to have a, a regular job as a robot, which can't be uh, a very common thing. According to our sources, the Megatron was indeed haunted. I spoke to a man called Terry Pinner, who still lives in the area, and he said that staff who were there at night reported knocking sounds coming from the building and objects moving around. He said that cups and saucers were flying about, which sounds a bit strange that there were flying saucers inside a flying saucer. The guy who created the place, Danny Blundell, he was working there late at night. He hadn't taken these reports very seriously because he was a very sceptical man, very practical man. And when he was there at night, he could hear footsteps following him. Yeah, according to our sources, that was the, the time at which he started taking it seriously. And um, apparently the Megatron stood on a road that used to lead to the mortuary for the airbase. So Terry thought that perhaps there were wayward spirits who were still hanging around from that time, and they actually brought in an exorcist and exorcised the place. Apparently that was the end of it. When I speak to people now, they almost universally talk about how much they love it and what a pity it is that it closed and was eventually demolished. But some people at the time thought that it was an eyesore and a monstrosity, I don't know. I've not been able to track any of these people down. I'd love to speak to them now. When the place closed in 1992 and there was talk of McDonald's taking it over, I think some people loved the idea that it was about to be knocked down and they didn't realise that McDonald's was going to operate in this flying saucer-shaped restaurant. They just refurbished it and kept operating there. For most of its career, it was a McDonald's, but when they took over the place, they kind of stripped a lot of the interior out, so the computers and the staff dressed as aliens, that, that was all gone. So I think it's, it's much more interesting for me to look at those first two years when it was this really special venue. It reopened as a McDonald's in 1993, and it seems to have closed in the year 2000, and it lay derelict until 2008 when it was demolished. And they, people tried to put a preservation order on it because they recognised it was this unique landmark. But I think as often happens with these things, as soon as somebody puts in a preservation order, the bulldozers go in straight away before anything can be done. I started a YouTube channel to make short documentaries about my local area, which is Peterborough in Cambridgeshire. And I thought that the Megatron would be an ideal subject for one of these short documentaries. But then the more I looked into it, the more I kept finding. And I thought there's really something to this, something more interesting about it. As I started to find the people who used to work there and what they're doing now, there's just so many stories to be told. 
we've started shooting a documentary. We've done some interviews with people and we've done some drone footage, but we're still quite early on in the project. We'd like to tell a complete history of the Megatron and catch up with a lot of the people who used to work there and who were involved to see what sort of lives they've had since. Because some of the people involved, I think I think it goes to show that we're just, we're surrounded by amazing, talented people wherever we are. As an example, the man who made the architectural model for the place, he worked on Jerry Anderson TV shows like Thunderbirds and Space 1999. But he also did things that I never would have thought of. Like in 1979, the, the Grand Mosque in Mecca, the big mosque, was taken over by terrorists. And so the Saudi authorities got in touch with this guy, Richard Pennell, and he built a scale model of the Grand Mosque, 20 feet wide. And using this model, they could then work out where the line of sight would be for a sniper. And there's, there's another guy who, when the place was demolished in 2008, he just happened to be flying around on a paramotor, which is you wear a big propeller on your back and you fly around on a, on a parachute. And he just happened to be flying that day and took these photos. And when I spoke to him, he talked about how he had taught members of the Bin Laden family how to fly. <laughs> We're just surrounded by people with amazing stories. And I think that's one of the interesting things about it for me. Catherine Valente is a Hugo Award-winning science fiction and fantasy author and poet and she got in touch with me out of the blue last year asking about the megatron she wrote a book in 2018 called space opera which is a um, kind of eurovision song contest in space inspired by hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and th there was talk of turning it into a movie with the director of jurassic world and the producer of la la land and she's writing a sequel to that book so i I gave her everything we had at the time, because I think it's kind of exciting to help an author with their research. And um, earlier this year, she said that she was just putting the finishing touches to the book. So I got in touch with her again to ask if the Megatron got featured, if it got a reference of any kind. And she said that it's actually going to be central to the whole book. Two big set pieces take place in, in, in the Megatron. So it's going to be one of the themes running through the book. So I can't wait for that to come out and see the Megatron coming to life again and maybe even being turned into a, a, a movie as well. I think once you see the Megatron, it's very easy to get swept away by it, abducted. I think, I think whenever there's a post about it on on Reddit or on Twitter or any of those places, there's a really enthusiastic response to it. I think it's such a striking image, especially this video from 1993, showing it when it was a McDonald's. And it's just such a perfect snapshot of 1993 with all of the, the video distortion and everything. It's just this single image takes you back. I visited the Megatron as a child. I think I only went there once or twice. So my, my memories of it are actually kind of fragmentary, but that's that's one of the things I find so interesting about it, that as I look more and more into it, it becomes more real to me. I must have been about five years old when it opened. And I remember the touch screens and stuff dressed as aliens and robots. And I remember grabbing someone's hand, thinking it was my dad's and it was a complete stranger, so, so I remember that, that brief terror. I think one of the most interesting things about it for me is that it's like I'm reconstructing this half-remembered thing from my own childhood. I think somebody said McDonald's used to be a fun place for children and now it's a boring place for adults. We, we, we seem to have lost that sense of wonder, I think. I think I want people to remember the sense of wonder that we used to have about the future, that we seem to have lost in recent decades. And I think I want us to think about the special places that we're all 
surrounded by and perhaps we're not looking after because the this place got demolished but there are other places that are in a, a state of disrepair and if we if we took care of them then they could either be fully operational again or they could become monuments to what we used to believe in thank you again to tony for taking the time to talk to us about megatron you can find much more about the restaurant on the megatron memories facebook and twitter which we'll link in the show notes Well, we hope you enjoyed your visit to Planet Tomorrow. Our theme song was written by Spencer Roblin and performed by Forrest Van Dyke and Kyla Wooten. Our logo was created by Cyan Larson. You can find Spencer, Forrest, Kyla, and Cyan's social media accounts in the show notes. And of course, you can follow us at Pod Tomorrow on Twitter. This episode features additional tracks titled Bleeping Demo and Variation on Eggmont by Kevin McLeod, as well as Retro Systems, Curious Labyrinth, Egg Hunts, Ambient Synth Crime Story, and Sync by Heston Mims. Additional thanks to Evan Collins and Carrie, as well as Tony Khan, whose websites and social media pages are also linked in the description. And if you've got a question, or if you just want to say something nice, send us an email to planettomorrow at whalebus.net. And if you really like the show, you could rate us, you could give us a review on your podcatcher of choice. And if you really, really like the show, check out other great Whalebus shows at whalebus.net. Thanks for listening. Initiate Whale Bus Protocol Sequence 721.